Good morning, church. It's good to be up in front of you again. Appreciate you coming out on this rather gloomy day, but what a good morning it's been so far. We've already had a, a Greek uh, word study this morning. That was really that was really great, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thank you. And Jason, what a what a great devotional that was. That was beautiful. Got to tell you a little something before we get started. I'm a little under the weather, so I want to apologize for my vocal quality. It may not be real pleasant to listen to now, but I promise you it's going to get worse before we're done. But more importantly, I just want you to know that about an hour ago I took some Benadryl, and it's going to be kicking in pretty soon. If you see me kind of nodding off and finally just lay down, please, it's just the Benadryl. Don't do CPR. Just let me sleep, okay? This morning we're going to be looking at a small verse. I don't think it's probably anybody's favorite verse. But it's got a big idea behind it. And I have really enjoyed looking at it thoroughly. And I want to bring that blessing to you. So here we go. Remember you leaders, those who spoke to you the words of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know, in the Restoration Movement, one of our tenets is that Scripture was written to be understood, that you, you can understand it. We can, we can understand God's Word. One of the main ways we come to understand it is by using the Bible to interpret the Bible. We use Scripture to explain Scripture. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be trying to figure out what, what did the writer intend to write and what did the original readers understand they were reading. We're going to be doing that in two ways. First, we're going to look carefully at the words that were used in this passage. We're going to look, look carefully as we can at the words in the passage and then we're going to back up and look at the context that the passage is in. We'll get some meaning from, the, from this verse in both ways. So first we look at the words, then we look at the context. So here we go. What are the words? Well, there's three main verbs in this passage. Remember, consider, and imitate. And there's three main nouns. Leaders, outcome, faith. The three nouns are the objects of the three verbs. So, remember, remember whom? Remember your leaders. Which leaders? Those who spoke to you the words of God. Consider. Consider what? The outcome. What outcome? The outcome of their way of life. Three, imitate. Imitate what? Imitate their faith. So, let's back up now and look really carefully at those verbs. Remember, there's three of them. The first one is remember. Are you guys familiar with Strong's Concordance? Uh, if you're not, it's a, it's a great tool. We have a few copies of it in the library. There's a, there's a book that I use a lot. I, want, I just brought a copy of it up here so you could see it. It's a, it's a Greek English New Testament. 
So what it enables me to do is um, look at, a, look at a, a verse. It'll show me what Greek word was underlies every English word in that verse. Does that make sense? The Bible wasn't written in English, obviously. So I can look, I can look up a verse... There it is in English. I can look and see what Greek words underlie those English words. And then, how does that help me? Uh, I don't speak Greek. I can't really get much of the original sense from just seeing that Greek word. But what I can do then is it can show me every other place that Greek word shows up in the New Testament. Now, it may, it may have been translated to many different English words depending on the context because the meanings don't match up exactly one-to-one, right? So... Remember, is Strong's number 3421. It's a pretty common word in the New Testament. It's used 21 times. It might refer to something past, like uh, the time Jesus was in the boat. They're crossing over the Sea of Galilee. The disciples realize, oh, we forgot to bring any bread. They're talking about it. And Jesus hears them. Remember what he said? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? So it's re, it can refer to an event in the past, but it can also refer to something that's ongoing in the present. Like Paul says, remember my chains. He's still wearing chains when he writes that. So he's just saying, don't forget, I'm in chains. So consider is Strong's 333. Again, this is a... Um, a word that there's no real great big surprise there with, with the Greek. It's, it's not a real common word in the New Testament. Um, the only other place that it's used, Paul is in Athens. You remember when he's walking through on his way to the Areopagus that day. And he says uh, to, the, to the Athenians, as I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Observed is the same Greek word as consider. In Hebrews 13, 7. He's not just kind of walking along. He just kind of glanced over at the, at the statute there. He stopped. He really looked at it carefully. Read the inscription. Thought about it. it it's a careful observation. That's consider. Imitate. Again, no big surprise there. It's used four times in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Paul told the Thessalonians... Um, that he worked in order to give them an example to imitate. Just means what you would think it would mean. However, now we're going to look at the nouns, and there are some surprises there that kind of give us a little bit more of a flavor, maybe a little more of the nuance that the original readers got from this verse. Remember, we talked about remember your leaders. Well, what is that word leader? It's very interesting. It's, it's used 28 times in the New Testament in two different senses. The first sense is, is the one you would expect. It just means leader, ruler, chief. Um, in Acts 7, Stephen spoke of Joseph being appointed ruler over all Egypt. That's the same word there, somebody that rules. Um, it's used that way. Seven times in the New Testament. Three of those times are in this chapter, Hebrews 13. We'll look at another one of them before we're finished. But there's another sense. And this is, this is I know it's, this is a little nerdy, but I think it'll help us a little bit to look at it. 
The other sense, it's used more like a verb. It's con- it can be translated as consider, regard, esteem, think of, count as. Uh, for example, consider it pure joy, my brothers. That word consider is the same word as this noun leader. So when you when you hear it there, it's it's pretty easy to see what the writer intended. Consider it joy, my my brothers, when you encounter trials of various of various kinds. It may not seem like joy, but I want you to count it as joy. I want you to think of it as joy. I want you to esteem it as joy. Consider it joy, my brothers, even though it may not seem like it. Um, Sarah considered God faithful who had promised. You know, she went a long time without seeing much fruit of that promise. But she considered God faithful. Um, Moses considered the wealth of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You get, you get the idea. You get the sense. In each case, something is declared to be a certain way, deemed to be a certain way, even though maybe it didn't appear to be that way at the time. It's interesting also to point out this word leader here, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, that's not the word for elder. In fact, in the New Testament, there's three different words we use for elder, right? One of them sometimes is translated bishop. One of them sometimes is translated elder. One of them sometimes is translated shepherd. This is none of those three three nouns. This is none of those those words. So it seems that the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, intentionally used a different word here that that seems to have a broader meaning, not necessarily elder. It's not clear from the, from the passage why he would do that. Maybe some of the people to whom the letter was originally addressed were in churches that were brand new. Maybe they didn't have elders. They had leaders, but n- nobody had been sort of... Uh, uh, acknowledged to be in the office of elder yet, so um, so there's that. Let's let's go ahead and look at the next one. Outcome. This one's really interesting too. This is Strong's fifteen forty five. It's only used twice in the New Testament. One once here, but look at the other one. The other time is in First Corinthians ten thirteen. It says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That phrase, the way of escape, comes from the same Greek word as outcome in this verse, in the verse we're looking at today. It's interesting, isn't it? With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The NIV, I think, says the way out. So, hmm, that's interesting. Outcome actually is a is a is a literal um, translation of the of the word there. To come out, the way of coming out, the way of escaping. Okay. The last one, no big surprise, faith. 241 times in the New Testament, very common word. It's used 32 times just in Hebrews, and it's translated faith just about every time. So no big surprise there. But let's, let's put together what we've, what we've seen so far about, 
about these six words we've looked at, put them back in the verse and try to maybe see what, what kind of sense this, this verse might have conveyed to the original audience. Remember those men who've been, uh, who are counted as your leaders, who are considered to be your leaders, those who spoke to you the words of God. Consider the way of escape, their, their way out, that was illustrated by their way of life and imitate their faith. Is he talking about elders? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say that he is. He's talking about leaders, though. Main thing is, this verse isn't telling us just to remember what they taught us, but to look at how they lived what they taught us. How did they live what they taught us? And in particular, how did their way of life provide for them an escape, a way out? An escape from what? A way out of what? Well, that's great. That's a great question there. And I think that question points to the central issue of this verse. But I'm not sure we can answer it just by looking at the verse all by itself. But hang on. Remember, we said we're going to use Scripture to look at this verse in two different ways. First, we're going to look at the Greek words, try to squeeze all the meaning we can out of them. But then we're going to look and see what is the context of the verse. First, we looked inside the verse. Now we're going to look outside it, all around it. So let's look at the context. We're going to look at... We're going to look at Hebrews, sort of a 30,000-foot view of Hebrews. This is going to take a minute, but hang in there with me. I think it'll be worth it when we get to the end. You ready? Here we go. So why was Hebrews written? Well, it seems that the original audience was at risk of drifting away from the faith. And the writer seems to be trying to stop that drift. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. It seems that the writer was writing to address the real possibility of believers drifting away. Actually, the whole book revolves around that. Don't walk away. Don't fall away. Don't drift away. The writer works really hard in the first part of the letter to establish the supremacy of Jesus for these Jewish believers. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Abraham and the patriarchs. He's greater than Moses and the law. He's greater than anyone or anything. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's as high as anything can ever be. He's the promised one. He alone can save us. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's a lot of warnings in Hebrews that are like that. A lot of warnings about falling away. Here's another one. This one is is stark. For it's impossible 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Yikes. Not only does he make it pretty clear here that it's possible to fall away. It's possible to be all the way in with Jesus and then fall all the way out. But he goes further, doesn't he? He says, it's it's possible for that to happen to somebody and they end up in an irredeemable state. Wow, that's a, that's a category of human that you don't want to be in. Somebody that cannot be restored to repentance is absolutely hopeless. He's saying, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Well, why was it that this Hebrew audience seems to have been at, at risk of falling away like that? Were they just getting lazy? Were they getting sloppy? No. It seems like they were suffering intense persecution. Persecution so intense that some of them may have been tempted to abandon their faith. It seems that some of them were being tempted to just walk away from Christ, to just blend in with the world around them. And it sounds like this persecution had been going on for a while. Recall, he says... Remember the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The former days when you were, after you were enlightened. says, remember when you first became Christians. You remember how hard it was. It was a hard struggle with sufferings. He goes on to say... For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, listen, he, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Wow. Listen, there's, I don't see anything in Hebrews that suggests that this hard struggle with suffering that had come on them soon after they came to Jesus had become any less intense. It doesn't, there's no indication that the struggle, the, the persecution had changed any. What did seem to have changed was that these brothers and sisters were losing their confidence. They'd already endured great suffering, sustained by what? By the hope of heaven, is what this verse says. But now they're starting to waver. He's saying, don't throw away the confidence you once had. He goes on to say, yet a little while, and the coming one, who's that? It's Jesus. The coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back 
and are destroyed. We, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's, that's, really, that's really powerful talk. We're not like those who shrink back. That's not us. We're not going to do that. And that, brothers and sisters, is the lead up to the famous Hebrews chapter 11. We all know it, right? We're all, we're all familiar with that wonderful chapter, the sort of the Faith Hall of Fame. I didn't put it on a slide, but you know it. You're familiar with it. He's saying, remember your heritage. Remember your ancestors. They didn't give up. They didn't shrink back. They didn't walk away. They didn't blend into the world around them. Let me remind you of their names if you've forgotten. Remember Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, many others. Too many to name, in fact. Remember how they lived. Remember those who were tortured, who were mocked, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned to death, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering around in deserts, living in caves. They kept the faith. They kept seeking their heavenly homeland. And the message seems to be, and you can too. You can live faithfully just like they did. So don't shrink back. Don't fall away. Now we're up to chapter 12. We're getting closer to 13. Hang in there. Chapter 12 begins by reminding the readers that they also have a race to run, just like the ancient ones did. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the endurance, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Wow. Verse 4 of the same chapter. We've looked at the ancient ones. Now we're going to look at Jesus himself. He circles back to Jesus. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The rest of chapter 12 builds on this idea of remember Jesus. You've remembered the ancient ones. Now remember Jesus. Remember, we're talking about these people are just just a few years after Jesus' death. Some of the people in the audience might have known Jesus. Remember him. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees, verse 12. Verse 25, he reminds them that again, that there will be no escape if you refuse him who warns you from heaven. So now, we're up to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is fascinating. Now he starts talking about the church. The first section of chapter 13, it ends with a great question. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord's my helper. 
I'm not going to be afraid. After all, what can man do to me? What can man do to me after all, really? I have heaven. And that, my friends, is the context. That's the pretext of Hebrews 13.7. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Don't let the world win. After all, what can man do to you? Don't succumb to the temptation to just shrink back and live like everybody else lives. You share a faith heritage with people who didn't shrink back. Remember that. Remember that. Remember the ancients in the distant past. Remember Jesus in the recent past. And now, brothers, remember your leaders in the present. These are men before you right now. Remember them too, those who spoke the word of God to you. Look at their lives too. How have they escaped the world? How do they, when they meet the world's opposition, how do they resist the temptation to just shrink back and just be normal? You need every example of faith you can find from Genesis till today. You need to look for world-defeating faith wherever you can. And when you find it, you need to imitate it. It's a blessing that God wants to give you, imitating faith. Now, it would be a lot easier for all concerned if the verse had just simply said, remember your leaders and preserve the traditions they taught you. But that's not what this verse is all about. It also would have been easier if it had said, remember your leaders and hold to the doctrine they taught you. But that's also not what this verse says. This verse is about looking at their way of life. It's about looking to see how they used what they, what they taught in their own lives to escape the temptation that they feel to yield to the world, to to yield to the, sort of the gravitational pull of, of, of the sinful structure of the world. Just as you remembered your ancient forefathers, just as you remember how Jesus lived, now look at how your leaders live. We're almost done. But there's one more piece of context that really matters. We, we really need to look at it as well. What about if someone is in a church with not so great leadership? We're not, but somebody could be. And maybe some of you have been. Suppose someone looks carefully at their leader's way of life and they don't find evidence of, of an escape, of a, of a way out. What if those who have been deemed leaders actually didn't escape the vortex of the world? What are they supposed to do? What if they don't find imitation-worthy faith? Well, here's the answer, I think. This, this is the same word for leader that was in verse 7 that we've been looking at all morning. I believe the answer is Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Verse 13, 7 tells us to look for imitation-worthy faith. If we find such faith, we're to imitate it. But it seems that 13, 17 tells us that even if we don't, even if we don't find faith like that, we still obey and submit. You see, imitate their faith in verse 7, it has a qualifier, doesn't it? Consider the outcome of their way of life. But obey and submit in verse 17 doesn't have any qualifier. You obey and submit anyway. What it does have, though, is a, is a reminder of divine accountability. The leaders will give an account for how well they lead, but the rest of us will give an account for how well we follow. And somehow, that works. Somehow that's going to work. It'll all work together to glorify Christ. The way he has chosen to be glorified in his church. You see, Hebrews isn't only about individual Christians living up to their individual potential. It's about churches living up to their potential. And this is how God wants us to resist the world as a part of a church. Not merely as inspired individuals, but as a member of an inspired church. A well-led body of obedient members, all of us performing our roles, that's the way Jesus wants us to rise above the world. That's the way he wants us to preserve our souls. So this morning, we've looked at verse 13, 7 pretty hard. We've looked at it from the inside out and from the outside in, and that's about all I have to say about Hebrews 13, 7. So this morning... If you're not in Christ, you need to be. Jesus will return. There will be a judgment. And if you think that you're such a good person that you can stand alone before your judge, you will be disappointed. Nobody is that good. Nobody but Jesus. So if you reject the salvation that only he offers, there will be no escape for you. On the other hand, if you're in Christ, but you feel yourself in the grip of worldly ambitions and worldly thinking and sometimes find yourself wanting to just chuck all this and live your best life now, Hebrews was written for you. Verse 13, 7 was written for you. Look for faith worthy of imitation. It's out there. God wants to help you find it. Finally, if you love Jesus, but you're just not so sure what to make of his church. Hebrews 13, 7 was written for you too. You were never meant to walk this journey alone. Scripture's clear. You cannot be the Christian Jesus wants you to be without the church. Personally, I recommend this church. But just sitting in the assembly will not do it. That will not be enough. You've got to get involved. More than that, you've got to get to know the leaders. You see, the instruction in this verse isn't for the leaders. It's for the rest of us. The burden's on us to examine their life, to get to know them well enough that we, can, we know their way of life. 
Get involved. Get to know your leaders. Examine how they live. Look for imitation-worthy faith. It's there for you.